So our goal over the next four weeks, this kind of holiday season, is to draw our attention, of course, to the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In years past, we've used the the Advent candle to do that, uh, kind of according to that tradition, and and to highlight certain truths, we've done this, and we're going to obviously do that again this year. And as I understand this tradition, these candles are placed upon a wreath, which you can see here, uh, the evergreen wreath, which is its circular shape, represents eternal life. And traditionally, there are four candles that go around that wreath, three purple and one pink. And at the center of it, there's a white candle. In our case, we have four candles, uh, five candles, and you can see the colors are a little different, and we have them kind of up on a candelabra just for visibility's sake. It looks a little different. But the various traditions do assign different topics or different uh, ideas, different topics to these candles. And so traditionally, you might have heard them referred to as the prophecy candle, the Bethlehem candle, shepherd, angel, or, and Christ candle. They put these names to these candles. Over the next four Sundays in our Christmas and our Christmas Eve service, we're going to assign five different characteristics, or you might call them virtues, to these candles. Those virtues are hope peace, joy, love, and faith. And so in each message, we'll kind of focus on a different virtue or characteristic or topic. So the focus of this morning's message is on hope, the first of our candles. And so the question as we begin is, what is hope? What is hope? Well, if you looked it up in the Webster's Dictionary, you'd find a definition something like this. Hope is a feeling of expectation or desire we have for a certain thing to happen. That's what hope is. It's kind of a general, generic definition. Of course, our our hopes vary in their importance. We hope that uh, the bowl of soup comes to the table warm. Nobody wants a cold bowl of soup or cold hamburger. Uh, We want warm food. Uh, we We hope that our kids marry the right people, maybe a more significant hope. I hope when I'm riding my bike that there's a slight downhill and a tailwind. That's always helpful, good thing to hope for, uh, especially on the way back home when you're tired. But what about biblical hope? What about biblical hope? Is biblical hope simply a feeling of expectation we have for a certain thing to happen? Well, I think there are some clues that, clues in the Bible that such a definition is frankly, inadequate. It's inadequate. Let me give you two reasons why biblical hope is more than a feeling of expectation for a certain thing to happen. And these reasons will lead us into our text this morning from John. The first reason why biblical hope is more than a feeling of expectation for a certain thing to happen is this. Biblical hope is focused on God. Biblical hope is focused on God. Psalm 39, 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you, that is, in God. First Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, Peter writes, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times, Peter says, so that your faith and hope are in God. If the object, if the focus of our hope is God, then we are not directing our expectations towards some moving target. That is to say, our expectations, our hopes, are governed by God's character. 
They're governed by God's character. So biblical hope is more than the expectation for a certain thing to happen because biblical hope is focused on God. And number two, biblical hope is fixed by promise. Focused on God, fixed by promise. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul defended himself against King Agrippa. This is one of Herod's sons. He wasn't a good guy. Having spoken about his upbringing and his previous associations with the Pharisees, he said that, as Paul says in Acts 26, verses 6 and 7, and now I stand here on trial because, he says, of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, he says, I am accused by Jews, O king. The future hope that Paul speaks of is fixed to a promise made by his God. And the promise Paul speaks of there in that passage is that God would send his Messiah. Of course, in, in the timeline, God had sent his Messiah in, in the sense in which Paul is speaking there because Jesus had already come. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul speaks about the hope found in Abraham. You recall, God had promised Abraham an offspring, a child, yet Abraham had celebrated his 100th birthday. And no seed or no, no offspring. And his wife was 90. There was no heir. Romans 4.18 says, in hope... This is Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. You remember, God took him out in the dark and showed him the stars and said, so shall your offspring be, this numerous. And he's a hundred and he doesn't have a child. Abraham believed against hope is what the text says. That is, he clung on. And what was it that Abraham clung to? Paul continues in Romans 4.19, Abraham did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, Paul says, since he was about 100 years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But it says, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Those are profound words about a profound kind of faith. Abraham believed against hope. He hoped against hope. He clung to more than an expectation, to more than a mere possibility. He clung to something that was fastened. It was fixed. He clung to the promise that his offspring shall be as numerable as the stars. Biblical hope is focused on God and it's fixed on promise. It's for this reason that the author of Hebrews illustrates biblical hope with an anchor. That's the biblical illustration of hope is an anchor. This hope, this is Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. You can imagine when that anchor hits the bottom of that ocean, it is fixed. 
The ship is tethered to it and it cannot be moved. That's the illustration of hope. It's an anchor. Therefore, biblical hope is more than the expectation for a certain thing to happen. Biblical hope is a, this is a definition, a, a definition of biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation for something good in the future. I'm borrowing from John Piper there with that definition. Biblical hope is a confident expectation for something good in the future. That's a better definition. Biblical hope reaches for more than expectation and desire. What biblical hope demands is confidence and certainty. When we come to biblical hope, we come to the certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. You remember Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All the things that he promised. If, and that's really the, the point of this whole message. If he gave us Jesus, his own son, what promise would he not fulfill? Will he not graciously give us all the things that he's promised? Of course he will. So when the Apostle Paul or Abraham spoke of hope, when David cried out in Psalm 42, 5, hope in God, this wasn't a cross-your-fingers kind of hope. What they meant was, to use the words of William Carey, expect great things from God. That's biblical hope. Now, I told you that all of this would lead into our text this morning, and it does. We spent the last year in the Gospel of John. We've come up to finish John 12 and kind of the major division of that book. I'd like us to go back to John chapter 1, which was our reading this morning, in order to address or look at this topic of hope. In John chapter 1, verses 35 through 45, we find the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. The first disciple Jesus called, the first disciples were Andrew and John, although John doesn't name himself. He leaves himself out of the story, but he's there. Uh, these two were originally disciples of John the Baptist. But when John the Baptist declared that Jesus was the Lamb of God, well, they left John and they followed Jesus. They understood that he was just pointing to somebody else, and so they immediately left John the Baptist and followed Jesus, and that's verse 37 of chapter 1. It was Andrew then who told his brother Simon that they had found the Messiah in verse 41. Simon, who would then follow Jesus, but of course not before Jesus changes his name to, to Cephas, which means Peter or rock. That's where he gets his name. Therefore, the first three disciples of Jesus were John, Andrew, and Peter. In verse 43, we, we read that on the next day, Jesus found Philip, and he says to him, follow me. That's verse 43 there. Philip then becomes the fourth disciple, and it was Philip who then finds Nathanael and says to him in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. It's this verse that I want us to focus on this morning. Of course, at this point, you might be thinking, what does all this have to do with Christmas? Well, it has a lot to do with Christmas because Christmas is all about fulfillment. Christmas is about biblical hope. Christmas is a time to remember and to celebrate the evidence 
of fulfilled biblical hope. And that's what we find in verse 45. And so in the time remaining, I'd like us to consider the following claim. Reflecting on fulfilled biblical hope results in a confident expectation of the future. Let me say that again. Reflecting on biblical, fulfilled biblical hope results in a confident expectation of the future. And so what we'll do is we'll pick up the first part of that um, as we move through this. The first part, again, is reflecting on fulfilled biblical hope. Philip said, we have found him, in verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Here, Philip is dividing the Old Testament into two divisions, the law and the prophets. These are common divisions. We find them in the Bible, throughout the Bible. The law, of course, is the first five books of the Bible, which what we call the Pentateuch. And the prophets are those books titled after the names of the prophets. We know them. They're easy to find because they have the prophets' names on them, but books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets. Philip is saying the authors of these divisions wrote about someone. They wrote about him. In this verse, he calls him him. And that him, according to Philip, of course, is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Philip doesn't give us any specific passages in this passage here, but I believe there's one that might be close to his thinking. If you look over at John 1, verse 21, it says, And they asked him, What then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Now, here the Jews are questioning John the Baptist. They're asking John the Baptist who he is. They're trying to investigate who he is, and they ask him if he is Elijah. He says, no, I'm not Elijah. And then they asked him if he is the prophet. That, I think, is important. I want to draw, that, draw something out of that point. The question, you'll notice, isn't whether or not John was a prophet, but was whether or not he was the prophet. So there's something special about this, something unique about this request. request. And so this question comes from a passage in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I'm going to go there, and you can navigate there if you like. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, speaks about this prophet that they're asking about here. This is where this comes from. Again, remember, Philip said that this is him who was, who was in the law. We have found him who Moses wrote about, spoke about in the law. We'll look at, look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord, God, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This is Moses speaking about another prophet. Verse 16, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. What's happening here is God was terrifying. He was up on the mountain and they were scared. They said, we don't want to talk to him anymore. And so Moses is saying, okay, well, I'll send you another prophet like me. But somebody knew. That's what this is about. Verse 17, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Verse verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. 
In the days of Jesus' coming, there was tremendous expectation that this prophet was coming. There was tremendous expectation that this prophet was coming. As Rome continued to impress their dominance in the world, the Jews experienced harsh, hard, impoverished conditions. As a result, the, the people felt that they could wait no longer for this prophet. They longed for this prophet of Deuteronomy 18 to come. They even fell victim to imposters. You might recall what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. That was true in Jesus' day, and it will be true in the future as well. Kind of a dual fulfillment there in that passage. The Gospel of John even plays into this feverish expectation, both with the triumphal entry and following the feeding of the 5,000. You might remember in John chapter 6, when we work through that passage of Jesus feeding the 5,000, John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, that is, again, the feeding of the 5,000, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Of course, in doing that, Jesus isn't saying he wasn't the prophet. Jesus is just saying they, they didn't understand why the prophet came. They had a wrong understanding of that prophet. They wanted to make him king so that he could have dominance over the Roman Empire. And so that's why it says that in, in John 2, he did not entrust himself to those people. He did not entrust himself to those people, and so he withdrew, even though he was the prophet. You can see in these verses the feverish expectation for this prophet to come and to liberate the Jews from Roman dominance, Roman oppression. Therefore, I believe it's very likely that Philip has such a passage in mind. Of course, we don't have to read as far as Deuteronomy in our Bibles to find him of whom Moses spoke. In fact, we only have to read to Genesis chapter 3. We find him of whom Moses spoke, Jesus, in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 records the fall of man. We know that, those perilous events in which the whole of this world suffered under the judgment of God. Because of Adam's sin, spiritual and physical death spread to all men. You can look, look at Genesis chapter 3. You have a Bible with you, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. For the part the serpent played in the fall in deceiving the woman, the serpent received a curse. It's when within that curse that we read one of the probably the greatest promise given to us in the Bible. Genesis 3, 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. He that is, the woman's offspring shall bruise your head. And you, that is, the serpent or Satan, shall bruise his heel. The idea here is that one would suffer a mortal blow, a fatal blow. Uh, the, the, the wound to the head would be death. It would be destruction. The wound to the heel 
wouldn't lead to death. It would be something lesser. And so the pressing question of this verse, again, the very beginning of the Bible, is who is the promised offspring that will crush the head of the serpent? Who is it? And in many ways, this is really the question of the entire Bible, is it not? This is the question that the Bible is answering. Who is this person that's going to come and destroy the devil and give us access back into that garden? Who will restore us to the garden? Eve, of course, thought her son Abel was the chosen offspring. But what happened to Abel? Dale's going like this. Cain killed Abel. Noah's father, Lamech, thought Noah might be the seed. Far from saving the world, Noah played a part in actually judging the world. Not only that, Noah felt drunk and was shamed by his sons. Noah was not the seed. He was not the offspring. Genesis 12, we discover that the offspring will be narrowed down to an offspring of Abraham. Through Abraham's lineage, the nation of Israel emerges, and God calls Moses to lead his chosen nation. And although Israel vowed to follow God, well, they fashioned a golden calf, and they worshipped it. They rejected God. And so that golden calf incident is a, is a clue that Israel will develop a pattern of unfaithfulness. That unfaithfulness will continue. And it does continue all the way into the book of Judges. The book of Judges, Israel falls into this vicious, vicious cycle where they fall into sin. They're oppressed by a, an opposing nation, an opposing people. They cry out for help. And what does God do? God in his mercy gives them a judge. A, a, a kind of lesser king, you might say. A ruler to lead them and to help them. The last of those judges was Samuel. And by this time, the people no longer wanted a judge. What did they want? They wanted a king. They wanted a judge anymore. They wanted a king because all the nations around them had a king. And so they longed for a king. Of course, the people chose a king. His name was Saul. He was a head taller than everybody else. Problem was that Saul offered unlawful sacrifices. Saul failed to destroy the Amalekites as God had commanded. Yet again, another failed to be that offspring. And then comes David. Surely David will be that offspring. He's a man after God's own heart. He will be the one to crush the head of the serpent. He was the greatest king that ever ruled in Israel. But no, David was a man of bloodshed. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He arranged to have her husband Uriah killed in order to take her as a wife. As a result, God promised David that the sword would not depart from his house. David, like so many before him, would not become the offspring promised in Genesis 15. However, God makes a very special promise to David. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, an often overlooked passage, what we call the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring after you, there's that word again, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, I'll save some time here. It's not Solomon. It's not any of those kings. It's none of those. And if we're reading, if we're paying attention while we're reading the Old Testament, we discover that this promised offspring, this promised seed, will be the offspring of a woman, number one. The offspring of Abraham, number two, will be of the nation of Israel, number three. And number four, finally, we discover that he will be the son of David. Well, who's that? It's Jesus. Jesus ticks all those boxes. The story of Christmas is about a lot of things, but central to our understanding is this. Christmas is about fulfillment. It's about biblical hope. It's about the fulfillment of something spoken about thousands of years prior that actually came to pass just as it was promised. I read a Christmas devotional that contrasted fulfillment with surprise. Christmas is certainly a time for surprises. I know you love surprises. We put packages under the tree. We're imagining what might be in those boxes. We're longing for that surprise. Maybe you put together a bicycle or something else late into the night, setting up that morning surprise. We've probably all done that at some point in our lives. We're old enough. Maybe once the gifts are all opened, you, you hide some gifts somewhere around the house. Everyone thinks it's over, but yet there's still one more surprise left in the house. All of this is good. It creates a sense of wonder and excitement around Christmas. Go do those things. It's great. The author of that devotional writes that as we enjoy such surprises, we should remember, he, He says, it's good to remember that the coming of Christ wasn't meant to be a surprise. It wasn't meant to be a surprise. God had been promising his people a serpent-crushing offspring from the earliest pages of the Bible. The real story of Christmas is not a story of surprise, but of fulfillment. When Philip tracked down Nathanael to share the news of Messiah coming, he didn't say, surprise! God sent us a Savior. That's not what he said. What did he say? We have found, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets spoke. He's here. The one promised long ago. Think back, return to the story of Israel that I've been kind of working our way through. Israel's rebellion was so persistent that eventually God allowed the Assyrians and the Babylonians to come in and crush them. The Assyrians took the northern kingdom. The Babylonians come in. They took the southern kingdom. People are in exile. It's a mess because of disobedience. Yet even in the midst of such disaster, Jeremiah gives us a promise. Jeremiah 31. Look at that passage. It's important to know. Jeremiah 31, 31. Even in the midst of destruction, the prophet says this, Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, God says. There's no evangelism here. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Write down Ezekiel 36, 24 through 28. It's a similar passage. It's a parallel passage. Here's what the prophet is saying. Yes, God will restore his people to their land. He will put his commands in their heart. He will give them the power to obey. He will forgive their sins. He will bring salvation through a new covenant. There's so much hope here. And this is spoken in a time where it's hopeless. At least it seems that way. Hate to say it, but to make the point stronger, when Israel eventually did return from exile to the land, you'd think they would obey, but they returned to their old ways. Ezra chapter 9 tells us that the people intermarried with the nations. The prophet Malachi tells us that the priest, priest treated the worship of Yahweh with disdain. Speaking of Malachi, how does the Old Testament end? What are the last words spoken by the prophet? Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Judgment is coming. The day, is coming, shall, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, listen to this, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. For 400 years, silence. That's it. Enter in biblical hope. Not a feeling or expectation that a certain thing might happen. It's not biblical hope. Not a let's cross our fingers kind of hope, but a confident expectation that something good will happen in the future. It has to. Unless God is not God. After 400 years of silence, an angel visits a man named Zechariah. Luke chapter 1. He tells him, remember that seed offspring thing? His barren wife will give birth. She'll give birth to a son. And it's that son that will be the forerunner of the Messiah. Listen to the words of Zechariah and his prophecy about John the Baptist in Luke 1, verses 76 through 78. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God. Notice this, whereby, he says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. There it is. The sun of righteousness, the sunrise coming, fulfilled prophecy. Jesus is that promise. He is that offspring. He is that seed. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Moses, the prophets, John the Baptist, Zechariah, they all spoke of him. Mike Riccardi summarizes all this in his book, The Forest and the Trees. This Jesus is the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, fully God, but also fully man. He is the seed of Abraham, Genesis 12, because he lived a perfect life of obedience to his father. He is the perfect embodiment of what an Israelite was to be, was to be the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He is the son of David, the promised king who would reign on David's throne forever, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. And through his substitutionary life, death, and resurrection, he is the righteous deliverer, the mediator of the new covenant blessings of forgiveness of sins and the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 34. He's all those things. By faith in him alone, apart from works, Adam's sons and daughters, that's us, we may lay hold of cleansing for sin and a perfect saving righteousness that restores man's fellowship with his creator. All of redemptive history climaxes in the life and ministry of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have found him of whom Moses spoke in the law and the prophets. We have found him. Christmas is a radiant reminder that God does what he says he will do. The birth of Jesus is an emblem of hope. It's a symbol that says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Isaiah 46, 11. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will do what? I will hope in him. In a book entitled Lamentations. Or from a book entitled Lamentations. There's a second side of the claim that I made. You remember as we began, I told you that reflecting on fulfilled biblical hope, which is what we've done, results in a confident expectation of the future. I'd like to pick up that second part now. Ask you this question. How has God been faithful to you in the past? How has God been faithful to you in the past? You remember that famous accusation that Sherlock Holmes made to John Watson, Dr. Watson? He said, you see, 
but you don't observe. Holmes then challenged Watson to tell him how many steps led him from the hall to the office. Watson had seen the steps a hundred times. He never counted the steps. Sherlock could be a, quite arrogant. He makes the point saying, Now I know there are 17 steps because I have seen and observed. I have seen and I have observed. We too must see and observe how God has been faithful to us in the past. Isn't this what Jesus calls us to do in Matthew 6, 26? He says, look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? He says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Friends, we have to look at the birds. We have to consider the lilies. We have to look into the manger. Take a look around and take in all that God has been faithful to you in the past. All the ways God has been faithful to you in the past. I'm guessing you don't have to look very far. And even if you are suffering, which I know many of you, many of you are suffering greatly in this moment, even today, your hearts are heavy and you're feeling weak. Yet, if you see and observe I'm guessing you don't have to look very far to see God's faithfulness, even in your suffering. How has God been faithful to you in the past? Another question. How does, what does it look like for you to find hope in God's faithfulness today? What does that look like to find hope in God's faithfulness today? A couple ideas here. We need to start by acknowledging our limited perspective. If the summary of redemptive history I've unfolded in this sermon tells us anything, it's that God's ways are not our ways. There's a mystery here. It's amazing to think about the way that God orchestrated his plan of redemption. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, speaking to that point, he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The details of his story are mind-blowing. That he would send his king to die on a cross? That he would be born in a manger so lowly? Again, remember what those Jews expected. They put him on that donkey and they, palm branches, they thought he was going to come and destroy the Romans. But he was a suffering servant before he'll be a reigning king. We have to acknowledge our limited perspective. We have to accept that suffering can sanctify. I know this is hard, but it's important to finding biblical hope. C.S. Lewis said, he wrote, pain is God's megaphone to wean us from the earth. Andrew Davis wrote, we treasure the things of this world far too much. We define our blessedness in the meager terms of prosperity, physical health, success, family, friends, and the like. God often scarcely makes the radar screen. God needs to wean us from earthly idols to cause us to focus entirely on him. And pain is often a powerfully effective tool in killing our idols, end quote. So what does it look like for you to find hope in God's faithfulness today? 
We have to acknowledge our limited perspective. We have to accept that suffering can sanctify. And then we can anticipate, anticipate our eternal glory. We can look forward in hope, confidently anticipating the final fulfillment of God's promises. Would you turn to Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 21 with me as we close? Revelation 21. In a lot of ways, I've kind of covered the whole Bible in this message. Thank you for being patient. Yes, I preached the Bible in about 40 minutes. Something like that. <laughs> Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice. I love that. A loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things, former things, have passed away. Is your hope in these words an expectation that they might happen? Or is your hope in these words the confident expectation that they will happen? If Philip can say, we have found him, we have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, then the real story of Christmas is a story about hope fulfilled. May God fill us Fill this church with hope this Christmas season as we, re, as we reflect on the birth of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of God's promise to bring the serpent-crushing Savior. And may that hope result in the confident expectation in Christ's second coming and the fulfillment of his promise, as it says here, to dwell with us forever. Amen.